Good morning, Chapel Hill. Great to be with you. Welcome to our continued journey through the book of Jonah. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we particularly extend a welcome to you. We're glad you're here. And to bring all of us up to speed, let me just do a little review, okay? Uh, We know something about Jonah, but let's just remind ourselves of where we've been these last couple of weeks. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. He served, we find his story in several places in the Old Testament. God uh, came, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he said, I want you to go and I want you to preach to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh, the people of Nineveh were awful, bloodthirsty, horrible people. Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. And so we read that Jonah jumped on a boat and he headed as fast as he could exactly in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. Except the Lord wasn't quite done with him. And so the Lord, we read, hurled a great wind, a great uh, storm upon the sea, and, uh, and it stopped that boat in its tracks. In fact, it threatened to send it to the bottom. Sailors, they were hardened sailors, yet they had never seen anything like this. They're crying out for help, trying to figure it out. And finally, they turn to Jonah and say, what's going on here? And Jonah says, I'm the guy. I'm responsible for this. It's my disobedience. I am the one who disobeyed the Lord, who is the God of the sea. And so the, the secret would be that you throw me overboard and, uh, and then the sea will be calm. And actually the sailors tried not to do that. They did everything they could not to have to sacrifice this guy. But in the end they did what Jonah had told them. They tossed him over. The sea became calm. And one of the interesting little side stories of the book of Jonah is that all of these pagan, idol-worshipping sailors on that boat came to believe in the God of Jonah. The God of the heavens and the sea and of the dry land. So they converted. They, they actually made a sacrifice right there on the, on the deck of that boat to this God that they now served. Meantime, their first sacrifice, Jonah, was sinking slowly to the bottom of the sea and to his own death. We're going to be talking about that this morning, and I'm glad you're here to be a part of that. I want to tell you another Rachel story. I got a lot of them. This one is good. And uh, I don't want to share it with you. When she was three years old, our daughter, Rachel, we were invited to go to a backstage tour of the beluga whale exhibit at Point Defiance Zoo. Any of you ever see the belugas at Point Defiance? Just like Baskin and Robbins, another great thing that has gone the way of the Mohicans. They're gone. But man, they were cool. They were big and they were white and they were really impressive. And so, of course, we said yes. We want to go to this backstage tour. So we got to go in behind the scenes, and I got to set Rachel up on the edge of the pool, and then they called the whales over. One of them, Mayakas, the big mama whale, she came right over to Rachel, who was sitting there on the edge of the pool, and she was swimming fast, and her mouth was wide open. It looked like he wanted a little Rachel snack. But actually, she stopped right in front of Rachel, and she waited because she wanted to have her tongue scratched. Apparently, beluga whales like to have their tongue scratched. It says something about how gutsy our little Rachel was, because even as a three-year-old, she tentatively reached her little hand down into that big whale mouth and started kind of scratching that tongue. And the whale got more and more excited, kind of wiggling in the water, and Rachel got more and more excited, so she's scratching harder and harder, and she is so into it that she's not paying attention to what she's doing. And suddenly... She slips right off of the edge of the pool, right towards that whale's open maw. Daddy saved the day. I was there. I grabbed her, of course. I pulled her back. I set her on the edge because I'd been watching her. I knew that 
this daughter of mine was going to get so wrapped up in this she wouldn't pay attention to what she was doing. So I pulled her back and I set her on, on the edge, very proud of myself. My wife, of course, is just, just about had a heart attack next to me looking at all of this. But Rachel, when I set her back on the edge, whips around, looks at me with fire in those little eyes, and she said, Daddy, stop pushing me. She was convinced that I had been pushing her into the mouth of the whale when, in fact, I was saving her from the mouth of the whale. That's the thanks that a daddy gets. In this morning's story, we discover that Jonah's heavenly father pushes him into the mouth of the whale to save him. And we come to what is the most familiar and for some the most troubling verse in this book. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. So why don't we just read that little verse together? We will deal with that one, and then we'll move on, okay? So you'll find it up on your screen. Let's read it together. Ready? Go. And And the the Lord Lord appointed appointed a great great fish to swallow swallow up Jonah. Jonah. And Jonah Jonah was was in the the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There are 58 verses in this little book of Jonah. And this one verse is the one that gets all of the attention. And it is also the one that trips up the most people. Some people have a trouble with just the biology of it. What fish is big enough that it could swallow a human being? And if a man could be swallowed by the fish, how is he going to survive inside of that fish for three days and three nights? So because of these objections, some folks just dismiss the whole thing as mythological poppycock. Others believe that Jonah was a real person, but this part of the story, the whale story, the fish story, is, uh, it's, well, like Jesus, he taught parables. It's a parable that it really didn't happen, but it's intended to teach a spiritual point. And then there are some who believe that Jonah and the fish part of the story are historical. I'm happening to be one of those that last group. And so I'm just going to touch on this for a little bit. People get all wrapped around the axle on this part of it. I'm going to touch on it, and then we're going to move on to what I think are the more important things. First of all, let me just say this. The Hebrew language is imprecise enough that the word that is used for great fish could also be used for whale. All right? So there, and there are, in fact, whales that are large enough to swallow a human being whole. We know, for instance, of an of an event that happened in the late 19th century on a whaling vessel. One of the crewmen fell over. He was swallowed whole by a sperm whale. Remarkably, his crewmates killed the whale, brought brought it up to the ship, cut it open, and they found their crewmate still alive several hours later in that whale. You'll hear more about that next week. But anyhow, so we have at least one instance beyond the Jonah story that says it's possible. For me... I take this story on face value for a different reason. And that's because Jesus took this story, apparently, on face value. He's teaching in Matthew chapter 12, and this is what Jesus said. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You remember that Jesus often spoke of himself as the son of man. And so Jesus is actually using the story of Jonah going into and coming out of the fish 
as a, a predictive story to illustrate what would be the even greater miracle of him going into the earth, into the tomb, and back out again when it spit him out in resurrection power. Believing this fish story, then, is, it's actually not that big a deal for me because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's a, that's a lot bigger miracle than the fish story. Uh, if, if God could really raise a man from death to life, that's a far bigger deal than whether he could prepare a, a fish to escort his prophet to the place he wanted him to go. And honestly, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, and that's what it means to be a, a believer in Jesus, is that you believe he was raised to, to life from death. If you believe in the resurrection, then this other miracle is no big deal. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then the miracle of Jonah doesn't matter anyhow. Because everything rises and falls on the resurrection of Christ. That is where we start. And then we move in both directions. So, I believe it because Jesus seemed to believe it. And because compared to the resurrection of Christ, it's no big deal. All right? But anyhow, we're going to move on. It is, in fact, the story that Scripture presents to us. We call the Bible God's Word, God's Holy Word. It is what sacred Scripture presents to us. And so we're going to take it on its own terms. And we're going to take a look beyond verse 17 and jump into chapter 2. Let me start by asking this. I have been astounded by the number of people that have raised their hands to this question. So I can't wait to see what happens now. How many of you have ever come close to drowning? Raise your hand. (gasps) Amazing. Look around. I'll bet we've had more than 100 people over the three services who, who said they had an experience of drowning. I never have, but I can only imagine it must have been one of the most terrifying things. Well, that's what we are going to discover here in just a moment. I, I remember a, a little girl named Maria at a, a hotel swimming pool in Hawaii. I was sitting there reading a book. I looked out, and this little girl was just going down. She wasn't flailing. She wasn't shouting. She couldn't because her mouth was filling with water. All I saw was these big eyes go underwater. And so I went over the edge. I pulled her out. And she was fine. Her parents were obviously very grateful. But I, I saw the terror in her eyes as she went down. That was all I needed to see. And we're going to hear now a man speak with terror in his voice of his own drowning. That's the story of Jonah. Now we turn to Jonah chapter 2, and I want you to read this with me, because I think as we read it together, it'll, 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 you'll get, get it a lot better. But I want you to do two things. Pay attention to the direction that the words take us. The words move us in a certain direction. Pay attention to that. And also, I want you to watch for a glimmer of hope. Right in the middle of this man's, this man's drowning, you see a glimpse of hope. I want you to pay attention to that, okay? See if you can spot it. All right, let's turn to Jonah chapter 2 and read together. Ready, go. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever." 
When the captain uh, asked Jonah on the boat to pray for them, to pray that his God might save them from their calamity, as I told you last week, Jonah never prays. I suggested he didn't need to pray because he already knew what God wanted him to do. It wasn't an issue of him praying. He needed to obey what God had told him already to do, right? But now that Jonah's been thrown over the gunwale of the boat, now that he's floating around in the water, suddenly he gets real prayerful again. And the first thing we discover him talking about is he says that it is God who threw him in the water. Now, we were here last week. We read the story. It wasn't God. It was the sailors who threw him in. Jonah's not blaming the sailors. Jonah is saying, God, I knew this is your purpose. I know that you are behind all of that, that you were the ones who were stopping me in my tracks. And I know that you're not willing to let me run away from this call that is upon my life. That's the assertion that's being made here. And if it meant throwing him into the ocean to get his attention, God was willing to do that. Right here we have free will and the sovereignty of God butting right up against each other. Right? We Americans particularly, we like free will. We like to think that we're responsible for our own destiny, spiritual as well as otherwise. And yet this is one of those moments when we discover the sovereignty of God trumps our free will. This is a moment where he said, no, I have call upon your life. And I'm going to call you back to what it is you are created to do. And by the way, we should be glad that God's sovereignty trumps once in a while. Because if we followed our instincts, if we followed our free will, it would take us to a place of death. How often God has stepped in and said, I'm not going to let you go there because it will be bad for you. And you're going to miss what you were created to be. So God calls him back. He dumps him into the water in order to slow him down and get his attention. And it is a very vivid description. I ask you to pay attention to the direction that this takes you. Did you? Did you watch? Because really what it does is it takes us deeper and deeper and deeper the farther you go into the story. The prayer starts out, he says, we're, we're near the surface of the water, first of all. He said, you cast me into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. So we're flailing around on the top of the water right now. We sense that. And then we hear that he begins to drop beneath the water. He says, the waves passed over me. Your waves, your billows passed over me. And then we begin to sink, strangled by the seaweed, the kelp. Did you hear that? He says, the deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my throat, down near the the roots of the mountains. And then finally, he hits the bottom. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Do you hear the prison doors of death clanging shut. When Jonah first ran away from the Lord, we talked about this in the very first sermon. The writer of the story used one word over and over and over again to emphasize the fact that Jonah wasn't just running away. Jonah was in a death spiral spiritually in his, in his move away from God. What is the one word we heard again and again and again in that first chapter? Down. Say down. Well, when you come to chapter 2, he's not done going down, is he? For we watch him on the surface of the water, below the water, strangling as he makes his way down to the bottom, and finally down there where it says, the bars closed upon me forever. This is death language. Jonah was as good as dead. And how terrifying, and those of you who said, yep, I I nearly drowned when I was a kid. Those of you who've, who've been through that experience of sinking like a stone, 
and perhaps of having seaweed wrapped around you, this strangling and going down to a place that is so low that the very roots of the mountains were able to be seen by his fading eyesight. That's the story. It is a story of despair. It is an account of hopelessness on his part. Except for one little glimmer. Did you see it? There's one little verse that suggests that there is something more, something hopeful beyond this calamity that he finds himself in. It's in verse 4. Jonah says that I've been driven away from the sight of the Lord. Jonah is on his way, sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and yet we hear this faith-filled affirmation. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And you say, are you crazy? How can this be? You're drowning. You're going to be fish food. And yet you're speaking of the hope of one day returning to Jerusalem and worshiping God in his holy temple. How is that possible? I'm going to teach you a little bit about Hebrew poetry. And frankly, a little bit can go a long way. So, but here it is. Hebrew poetry puts the punchline in the middle of the poem. For us, stories, punchlines belong at the end of the story. But in the Hebrew, it's always in the middle. And so the Hebrew poetry, it builds up to the punchline, it gives the punchline, and then it leaves the punchline behind, kind of like a mountaintop. Verse 4 is that mountaintop. On the one hand, we have him sink, sink, sinking into the water. On the other hand, we have him sink, sink, sinking into the water. But in the middle, it's the punchline. He says, there's something more. There is deliverance that's on the way. And that's what we're about to read now in the second half of his prayer. So, listen, would you, as I share the rest of Jonah's prayer. It goes like this. He says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regards to vain idols... They forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And there his prayer ends. And apparently, he's learned his lesson, or at least enough of his lesson, because we read in the next verse that the Lord spoke to the fish, And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We'll pick that up next week. The first half of this prayer then starts with Jonah's distress, his description of his demise. The second half of his prayer talks about his deliverance. The Lord brought him up from the pit. He was drowning. He was fainting away. And God heard his final feeble prayers and saved him. He closes with this exaltation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Which is true. And it is wonderful. And could you just remind me, where exactly was he praying that prayer from? The belly of a fish. And you might say it was like out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? He may have saved him from drowning, but he's still stuck in the belly of the fish, even as he's praying these prayers of thanksgiving. So how can we be sure? How can we be sure that he's ever going to get back into the, the temple of the Lord and worship God there again? It seems still pretty darn unlikely given his venue. And yet Jonah seems to believe that the God who started his salvation by saving him from drowning, he's going to finish it. He's not done yet. 
That's the thing that I find really remarkable about this prayer. It is a song of thanksgiving. It is a song of thanksgiving. Even though Jonah is still in dire straits, he's still sitting in the belly of this great fish, he offers up a prayer of thanksgiving to God who has saved him from the ocean and who he believes is going to save him to Jerusalem one day. I think this illustrates a very mighty prayer principle that I want to call out for us today. And it is the power of thanksgiving. The power of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, regardless of our situation. Obviously, when things are going good, when we're grateful to the Lord, we offer thanksgiving then. But throughout the scripture, it teaches again and again that thanksgiving also comes when things are hard. Thanksgiving comes when things are hopeless. We offer thanksgiving when you are in the belly of the beast, even. The Apostle Paul taught this. He was sitting in a prison in Rome, waiting to have his head cut off. That was what he was expecting. And even so, he wrote this letter to the, his friends in Philippi, in Philippi, the Philippian friends. He wrote these words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, say it with me, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's saying, I don't care what you're going through. You offer up prayers, but make, you, make sure that you saturate those prayers in thanksgiving. That's pretty strong. We say, okay, yeah, we could do that. But then he, he doubles down even further with the, the Thessalonians. He writes this to them. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's even stronger than the first statement. He says, whatever you're going through, he says, you can find some reason to give thanks for it. So give thanks in all circumstances. He say, that's harder, but I can try. But then he, then he takes it one step higher. He, he really goes nuclear with the Ephesians because here's what he says to the Ephesians. Say it together. Give thanks always and for everything. Wow. We're not just talking about giving thanks in everything, giving thanks in the process of everything. He's saying give thanks always and for everything. And we find ourselves saying, really? Really, Paul? Do you mean this? Really? Give thanks for my cancer. Give thanks for my divorce. I think I heard, I said one of you just whisper that to the person next door. Give thanks for my drug addicted child. Really? Give thanks for my lost job. Give thanks for the death of my beloved. Really, Paul? And Paul says, yes, I really mean it. And Jonah says, Yes, I really mean it. Because, and here's the point, the belly of the beast might be your salvation. The belly of the beast might be your salvation in ways that you cannot even know. That rancid, stinky, disgusting, seemingly irredeemable situation in which you find yourself might just be the means by which Almighty God is going to save you for a purpose greater than you could ever imagine. Ten years ago, I was in the middle of an employment discrimination lawsuit that was filed against the church and against me. It was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my ministry life. It felt evil and unjust and wickedly wasteful. And I was at one point so devastated by it that I was diagnosed as clinically depressed. I thank God for my partner, my wife, Cindy, 
She fasted for me. She prayed. I found her on her knees again and again praying for me. She encouraged me. And she did something else. She created a CD of music, praise music. And it was, every song was about thanking God in the midst of the storm. And every day as we drove to the courthouse, we would play that CD over and over and over and over again. We would saturate ourselves in it. To this day, if I hear one of those songs, I remember that and it's like a flashback for me. We felt like we were in the belly of the beast. And yet we chose to thank God for it. Honestly, even now, I'm not sure why God allowed that to occur. It was so painful. But I do believe that God used that to shape me in ways that I cannot even understand. To humble me. To soften me. To prepare me for a future I did not know I had coming. And I know this, that when I was in the belly of my beast, the thanksgiving that I chose to offer reminded me of God's salvation. Imagine sitting for three days and three nights in digestive juices. And floating around you are the half-digested corpses of the fish that have been consumed along with you. And you have every reason to complain, every reason to whine, every reason to curse the God that has abandoned you. Instead, you choose another way. Right there, sitting in those corrosive juices that engulf you, you decide to believe God. You decide to praise God. You decide to offer thanksgiving to the God who created that fish and appointed it to swallow you up for a time. You choose to thank him for it. And here's what you declare when you choose to offer thanksgiving from the belly of the beast. Here's what you declare. What God has allowed to swallow me will one day spit me out. What God has allowed to imprison me will one day set me free. What God has allowed to triumph over me will one day be defeated. This too shall pass. I want to say it again. What God has allowed to swallow me will one day spit me out. What God has allowed to imprison me will one day set me free. What God has allowed to triumph over me will one day be defeated. This too shall pass. When you praise God from the belly of the beast, it makes you indigestible. When you sing, when you praise, when you remain hopeful, when you speak words of faith and future, when the beast that is trying to chew you up discovers that your response is not terror-stricken, but inexplicably thankful and hopeful and God-honoring, that makes you indigestible. You are not a good meal. And you might end up being spit out a lot faster than you might otherwise have been. It may seem very counterintuitive, But Jonah teaches us that when we find ourselves in the belly of the beast, in stinky and rancid and dark and hopeless times, the very best response is thanksgiving. Because that beastly situation might be the means of your salvation, of your redemption, of your restoration. May I remind you of the cross? Who could have found anything that was praiseworthy about the cross of Jesus at the time? Yet look what God did through that beast. Even in, even through, 
Even for the hardest moments of our lives, we live with thanksgiving. We pray thanksgiving. We claim a future that seems impossible from the present we now know because, as Jonah reminds us, salvation belongs to the Lord. Thank you for chasing us down, God, when we would have run away from you. Thank you for meeting us, even in the darkest, stinkiest, rancid moments of our life. Thank you for converting those, for turning those into means by which we are saved, we are purified, we are prepared for the next part of the life that you have for us. God, that requires faith to see that. It requires your spirit to see it. But may we change our minds about these moments. May we really believe you. May we be Christians as if God is real and live in that kind of faith, even the faith that can cry out praise and thanksgiving from the belly of our beast.